Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. And joining us now is Jim Richberg, uh, the former National Intelligence Manager for Cyber, who is now the Public Sector Field CISO, or Chief Information Security Officer and VP of Information Security at Cyber uh, Security Company Fortinet. Uh, Jim, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, I know we've been trying to make this happen for a long time, and I'm glad to have you aboard. It's a pleasure to finally get a chance to have this conversation, Margo. Indeed. Before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell, Leonardo DRS, and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security, as I mentioned, not just sponsors our cyber report, but our, our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air coverage and Leonardo DRS, HII, and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent annual uh, symposium. So, uh, you know, I want to start with the aviation uh, system uh, writ large. You know, we on this program talk about uh, critical infrastructure the nation has to defend, whether it's power or water. Uh, and we saw during the holiday season what happens when companies, for example, have underinvested in their uh, back-end uh, infrastructure, whether it's been with Southwest, but we've seen other uh, airlines have that challenge as well. And then it raises the question about the overall security of what is a very distributed, federated, you know, air air uh, air transport system, whether it's on the airline side of things, whether it's on the government side of things. And you wrote a thought-provoking article uh, last year uh, about that, but also have been talking a lot about this uh, issue uh, and one that you focused on when you were in government. What is the nature, the specific nature of the challenge? Uh, because we have to understand the challenge if we're going to be solving the problem. Sure. Well, you know, in my time as the national intelligence manager, whenever there was a high profile outage that occurred in any critical infrastructure, could be power, could be the stock market, um, we would invariably rapidly get calls from policymakers, was this a cyber attack? And I have to say, Vago, looking back on my time in government, I think I got more of those calls about the aviation industry than any other mm -hmm. sector. Uh, you know, it could just simply be an airline is having trouble with routing or whatever, but it, it this for well over a decade has had policymaker attention. And I think it's because you wanna describe the problem. It's, it's um, a complex system of systems. It's porous because it's not, you know, we talk about, well, some of these complicated things like nuclear power, you air gap them. No, you have to have, you know, the airplanes have to be able to talk to all these different systems. Passengers expect to come in, get on, use the internet on planes. Um, you know, as you point out, problems can be very impactful. You know, you're moving people around. And to the extent that you're dealing with criminal activity, criminals follow the money. So you put this all together, you've got a very complex thing where, as you point out, uh, different players own different parts of the ecosystem. You've got airlines, you've got airports, you've got government, you've got manufacturers of, of the, the aircraft, you've got people using things as a service, and then you throw people as passengers in the middle of the mix. And I think this is arguably one of the most complicated ones um, that, that's out there in terms of a sector. When I, when I think of this, Vago, it's you know, it's almost a blend of the operational technology manufacturing plant type of thing where you, you figure out how to secure that. And they're, they're the, of course, the big trinity that they worry about is safety, reliability, and then security. But it's also a little bit like customer-facing retail. 
as well, where you really, the customer is always right, you need to cater to them. So aviation is, I think, complicated in part because it's a very, very complex hybrid that doesn't really look like any of the other 15 critical infrastructure sectors. And again, it's part of transportation. It is recognized by the federal government as a part of critical infrastructure. Um, you know, it's uh, it's funny, you know, as you were saying that I forgot to mention, uh, the no to airman system went down, right, just a couple of weeks ago. And the first thing everybody was talking about, oh, my God, you know, is, is Russia uh, doing a cyber attack and federal authorities came out pretty quickly and said, no, you know, it was the no to airman system that went down that uh, that caused uh, sort of a, a stalled uh, the national air traffic system for a couple of hours, which is correct, and, and that, which is actually what made me think of that as I was, you know, getting my thoughts together for this program. And I noticed how quickly after NOTAM went out that the authorities came out and said, and this was not a cyber attack. Now, you know, right. of course, it turned out this, you know, deletion of some key files during system maintenance. But, but again, you know, people recognize this, this system has Achilles heels and its consequences are felt far and far and wide. So what is the architectural solution to this, right? Um, and, and I ask this because every large organization can benefit from this, right? I mean, we're going to transition and I'm going to ask you some, some questions from a DOD perspective and a defense perspective, because the challenge is very similar. You have a widely distributed array of uh, contractors, you have uh, federal uh, systems, um, you know, it is, it is uh, complex, cumbersome, uh, maybe a little bit less public interfaces, but no less, there are a million entry points to this. I mean, it, it's maybe an exaggeration, but not that big of an exaggeration, yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, if you add now people do their personnel management online and, and a whole bunch of other things. Walk us through what the architectural air transport system can be and what are the lessons more broadly, right? I mean, the administration is a couple of weeks away from uh, unveiling its national uh, cyber strategy. You do spend time at the White House uh, talking to your former colleagues uh, there as well, right? How do, how do we need to think architecturally and, and, and how does a solution in one area then present itself actually more broadly uh, across government and, and industry. So one of the one of the uh, focus areas for the administration in, in their cyber strategy, and I think arguably even in the national security strategy that was issued last October was, let's try to transfer risk from those end users, uh, individuals, small business, and the passengers, et cetera, in the case of the airline industry, to those in the ecosystem who are better able to systemically deal with the problems. And I think that trans translates into things like secure by design and secure by default. So if you can say, I'm dealing with a complex set of legacy architectures, but let me try to do things like put in, and I know this became a buzzword after uh, executive order 14028 in 2021, zero trust, zero trust architecture. You know, for those of us who come from government, zero trust was not a new idea. We had need to know for a very long time. We had segmentation and control of information. Heck, you couldn't go certain places and build certain buildings without the right color on your badge. So we had been doing that. Even IT was doing it, calling it role-based access control. But the idea that you don't want to tell people you can or cannot do something based on their user class or where they're logging on from, but make it more transactionally based. You know, going to validate you, going to validate what you're trying to do. I'm going to watch it. And if something goes, you know, out of what I expect it to be, then I'm going to block it. It's really those kind of philosophies that allow you to say, regardless of the architecture, regardless of where the system is and what kind of system it is, I can do something that allows me to make 
connect, connectivity and security much more fluid and interactive than they are under this old moat and castle style of securing my data, locking down the data, you know, validating the users one time as they come across, you know, the, the portal and that's it. So right. and I think this is a solution that, uh, that, that we really want to do. And then that for, uh, for the aviation industry, uh, you know, producers of the planes, the airports, et cetera, I think that starts to point you in the direction of security uh, by default you know, make it easy. I mean, you know, for those of us who've been in this industry for a long time, we remember back when devices shipped with default passwords of things like admin, password, one, two, three, four, five, six. And we always bemoaned the fact that people wouldn't change them and therefore they were non-secure and got compromised. Well, it took the vendor community turning to secure by default, putting a uniquely coded password on the side of each one it's a strong password. The reality is most people still don't bother to change it, but at least the baseline is now a strong password. So we made it secure by default. Now, for nostalgia purposes, you can always go back in and change it to admin or password, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> we've tried to raise the bar uh, simply as a, as a default because most people are so busy living their lives and doing what they're doing that they're not going to fight you. You know, they're going to go with the default. And unfortunately, if the default is non-secure, that's what they live with. But if it's secure, that's also something I think that benefits us collectively. Um, let me uh, uh, take you uh, to the internet of things, um, right? I mean, we are now, uh, you know, we heard from John Cofrancesco, formerly of Fortress, now with AAIC, uh, you know, talking about the challenge associated th with this um, and how invasive, right? I mean, why something like TikTok is so problematic because it's like a locust. I mean, it spreads everywhere like a cancer, uh, if, if you will. And now everything from our watches to our phones, to our TVs, to our toasters uh, are, are listening to us. There's a lot of benefit and goodness that comes from that, but also a whole series of vulnerabilities. What is kind of, again, I mean, um, you know, given your experience in government, you know, what is the architectural solution to this? What's the data part of this? What's the behavioral part of this? Because, I mean, honestly, I think, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, Philip Niedermeyer, uh, has been pushing this case. Uh, Ron Gula and Cindy Gula have been pushing the case for better cyber education uh, is, is part of this. Anyway, sort of walk, walk us through sort of broadly how you're thinking about this and how we do need to think about this, um, you know, given, so given the threat's actually going to get worse before it gets any better. Sure. Now, you know, the, the challenge with IoT and IIoT devices is so many of them are not built. They're, 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 they're based on lowest cost, and frankly, most of them are not upgradable. So security is, in, in some cases, I hesitate to even call it an afterthought. It's simply not part of the equation. They're what we call headless devices. You know, you can't, you really can't interact with the control system itself. So you have to do creative things like put a virtual patch to a vulnerability that you find. But again, I point back to, you know, if we had, if we were saying you need 10 different kinds of solutions, that's a complex ecosystem. Something like zero trust actually can work for those too. Um, I, I expect my toaster or my luggage tag to do certain classes of, it, of things and not others. So I'm gonna set them up and say, role-based access will allow them to do this and not that. So, you know, I think the same kind of philosophy it would be wonderful if we can get those vendors 
to go to secure by design as well, but then maybe if they won't, uh, because cost is always going to be a factor and people also worry about stifling innovation by coming down too heavy on, on the security side. Well, then you move the risk to some of the other parts of the ecosystem, to the companies who say, okay, I can help you build an architecture where security is a part of the ecosystem and the operation. I can take things that are not secure by their nature and we're gonna watch what they do. You're gonna tell me what you consider acceptable for these IoT devices and we'll have a white list. Um, and you know, if it, it, so you can have the goodness, hopefully without stifling the ability to innovate and take advantage of whatever the latest new part of the technology is. Yes, it's not realistic to say everybody is going to start doing security from a manufacturing perspective. On some of these devices where the chip costs a nickel and the device costs a few dollars, you know, we're always going, and then there's always sort of where we started the conversation on NOTAM and other things, the law of unintended consequences means you're never going to have perfection. So you really go for something that's risk management, and I think that points you in the direction of something like zero trust, which is a bad name for a good idea that we've had for a long time. What's possible on the data side of things, what's possible on the behavioral side of it, right? We're now creating a generation uh, that is uh, born with a smart device in their hand. Um, they um, don't necessarily have very good practices often. Um, and right, we still don't have sort of a national cyber curriculum, if you will, right? I mean, I, I, I think art is important, shop is important, but I think that kids at a very early age should be having some kind of cyber um, a class uh, that tells them, hey, you know, passwords, how to think about what the, you know, the weapon really that's in your hands in, in some respects. What do we need to be doing again on the, on the data side of things to try to improve security from a, a, a macro perspective, uh, whether it's through standards or other things, but then also what we need to be doing from an education standpoint. So let me, let me start with the back end because you know, education is, is a part of the solution. And education, of course, is nuanced. It, you know, as you said, it starts, really it needs to start in, in you know, primary school and, and go all the way up. And that's one way actually to help to bridge the gender gap where you know, women are self-selecting out of the STEM things. And we go, wait a minute, cybersecurity, uh, you know, we have underrepresented parts of the population in a field where we're chronically and critically short of people. Why are we not broadening the talent pool as best we can? Doing a better job of education and making people recognize this is everything from password hygiene to good and bad behavior. And cyberbullying is a real problem as well. But also this, I think, helps break that mindset that all of cybersecurity is programming. It's the pocket protector type of person who's going to get into this. Because so much of this, I found some of the most effective cybersecurity people are people with good people skills, soft skills, not necessarily technical. They're good at creative problem solving. They're good at project management. They're, you know, they don't need a four-year degree. And I think starting cyber education young, uh, you're going to get some people who are going to be hooked on. You know, we have so many kids who enjoy different kinds of puzzles and problem solving. This is a way to, can you find the vulnerabilities? Can you make something better? I think that it'll, it'll help. And, uh, you know, when you then continue that all the way through, uh, you know, we've got the Academ Centers of Academic Excellence that the federal government sponsors, you know, for 
if you're coming into a recession to be able to point to a field like cybersecurity where you can say there's a negative unemployment rate in the sense that uh, CISOs at companies would, would actually like to hire more people than there are on the market, even with the recent layoffs from big tech. So this is a multi-pronged thing. You need the workforce, you need to change people's behaviors, as you point out, to do things that are intrinsically less risky. But part of this is you then have to flip around and say, and then we have to work it from the, uh, the, the manufacturer side as well. And you talked about data. It seems like you can have a conversation these days that doesn't get immediately into AI. You know, whether we want to say open AI, chat GPT, whatever, um, you know, it's hyped. But the reality is those kinds of tools and capabilities can help you in cybersecurity for, for big data analytics. You know, they can allow you to characterize what's normal so that you can know immediately what is this person doing that is abnormal, either for them, either for the class of user that they are. So data, big data is um, a resource to be exploited in this sense. And I think I'm increasingly seeing this take off in the private sector. You know, you're, you've heard that, the, you know, you've seen chief data officers now take off as, you know, the latest, uh, the latest new C-suite spinoff. Uh, of a job title because enterprises are recognizing that data doesn't just have transaction by transactional value. It's an enterprise asset. If you put it all together, uh, you can actually come up with everything from pattern of life to broader, uh, broader epiphanies and realizations about your users and for us about how to do security. You know, if you're looking across all these sectors, right, I mean, you know, we, we've talked about aviation, we've talked a little bit about other sectors as well, we've talked a little bit about defense and IoT, right, how do each one of these sectors sort of fare, whether compared against one another, or, uh, you know, on how they're, they're doing again, you know, sort of hearkening back to the first lessons of, uh, you know, sort of the nature of the problem, the lessons being learned that can be applied elsewhere? Well, Vago, that's, a, that's a great question. And, you know, I deal with, uh, with, government, I deal with some private sector organizations. And I think the top of mind question for everyone, given what's happened in threat, given IoT, given all these changes is, how do I integrate or federate my security? Whether it's horizontally across a number of different operating units, whether it's you know across complex systems of systems. And uh, as I talk to them, I say, at a minimum, integrating security is a two-part problem. One part is building shared situational awareness, having a common operating picture of what's going on, especially of threat activity. And the second part is driving integrated action against it. Well, when I tell them, how, do you, how can you approach building that common operating picture? For virtually every sector, they have this vision of a NORAD or air traffic style ability to put all of the data coming from all directions on a common view, something where everything makes sense can be compared to itself. Um, that is the pipe dream that virtually every other sector has. If we want to talk about power for a second, you know, let's say we wanted to have a, a health map of power in the U.S. Well, how do you, if you look at the nuclear industry and pipeline generation, pipeline, uh, you know, movement and solar, they're measuring different things. How in the world do I put that all together? Now we look at the aviation industry. Your starting point is everyone else's input. So, you know, as complex as we talk about the systems of systems and we have, you know, big data ranging from passenger bookings to uh, having to put avionics to, you know, luggage, putting all of that together, 
you still are in a comparatively better position in this industry and sector compared to anyone else. It still means you have the problems of integrating action, still means you want to fuse multiple kinds of threat data, but at least for the critical stuff like health and safety of, you know, how are airplanes doing, you are miles ahead, no pun intended, ahead of any other sector at your, in your point of departure. Uh, let me ask you one one last question, uh, Jim. You know, you you mentioned uh, you know the system, and that draws me uh, to hardware. Um, obviously, Boeing and all the major aircraft makers are putting a big focus on cyber and cyber uh, defenses. They've been making that investment for some time. You know, as you said, you you've got now you know connectivity everywhere, entry points everywhere. Uh, so you know, you get on GoGo -Go flight you're on a network, the network remembers you, which is good if it works. <laughs> I'm not criticizing anybody. Um, you know, but one of the challenges we have found, for example, in the DOD, uh, right, that you will deliver a brand new $100 million stealth fighter, but unfortunately, somebody somewhere connects it to a 20-year-old virus-riddled computer, right? Um, right? You know, how do we have to think about hardware? How, how, how are we doing on the hardware security side of things? Um, and, and is this as big of a danger and a concern, right? I mean, we're, we're doing the software bills of origin and materials, the hardware bills of origin of materials to get to the heart of some of these vulnerabilities that may exist in our chips, uh, as well as in our software. Um, how much of an issue is this on the commercial, on the air travel side of the uh, equation as well? So yeah, I think the, the real focus is try to move away from protection, uh, you know, perfection in protection in favor of resilience to say, you know, just as we talked about zero trust, um, unless you have something that's absolutely critical path with a single point of failure, say I'm going to go for a model of both hardware, software, and services that are about resilience, that are about having multiple paths. So, you know, we're, you deal with that in the aviation all the time. You never put something in the air where there's, you know, a, a single point of failure and a single path. You always have redundancies, you have rollovers, you have fail safes. You can do uh, your security the same way. And I think we're moving that way um, in terms of hardware, in terms of software, in terms of architecture. You know, and if you look at something like Zero Trust, it's a matter of moving the philosophy for operating for the people moving in that direction as well to say, um, I can, I can, I, it's really at the end of the day, Vago, cybersecurity is about risk and it's about managing risk prudently. There are times where you potentially can accept no risk, but that's very much the exception. We don't live our lives that way. It's about how you manage risk. And sometimes if something's really important, I make sure I have multiple ways for that thing to be done and delivered as an assured service. So I think manufacturing is taking the same page on resilience that we're taking on these other services. Jim, uh, pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much. You're always welcome uh, back on. Uh, very thoughtful conversation and looking uh, forward to continuing the dialogue. Thanks so very much. I enjoyed talking with you, Margaret. Thank you.